You're listening to In Technology, your source for trends about security, sustainability, and technology. If the incentives that are in the infrastructure package and the IRA legislation play out in anything like they're envisioned, that's really going to spur an even faster decline in the cost of renewables. Hi, and welcome to the In Technology Podcast. I'm your host, Tom Garrison, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Camille Moorhart. And today, we have a very special guest, Stephen Harper. He is the Global Director of Environment and Energy Policy at Intel. He has over 30 years of experience shaping private and government policy regarding the environment, energy, climate change, and sustainability, and he's currently a board member for the Energy Foundation. Welcome to the podcast, Stephen. Thanks. Glad to be here, Tom. Wow, 30 years in this industry. That's quite a tenure. So we want to spend today talking, you know, there's been so much that's been spoken and written about the CHIPS Act and about the Inflation Reduction Act and other things that are in the news. And so we figured this would be a great topic for people that just want to understand what's the current state of regulations and so forth. And it's so complicated. We figured you'd be a great person to sort of explain it. So maybe we'll start with the CHIPS Act and what is it? What does it actually mean? Not the marketing messages, but what does it actually mean for us, Intel, as well as for the industry? Well, I think it means a couple of things, Tom. I think financially, it's going to help close the gap between what it costs to build a fab in the United States and what it costs to build a fab in particularly Asia. And I should say Europe has also passed their own version of a similar piece of legislation. So, you know, the the vision is that the CHIPS Act will basically restore leadership in uh, high-end manufacturing in our industry from, I don't remember the exact figures, but something like 30 to 40% 25 years ago to a fraction of that today. So that's the first thing. It's going to help incentivize construction of fabs, for example, Ohio, Intel's Mm -hmm. Cardinal project. Can I ask a quick question too? Why is it that it costs less to build, say, a factory over in other countries as opposed to the U.S.? Is it just labor costs or is there something else going on there? No, I mean, labor costs are part of it because in the construction world, it's labor intensive as opposed to, say, the fabs where labor costs are less of a factor once you start operating. The biggest reason it's cheaper, for example, particularly in Taiwan and China, is because the governments provide incentives. They provide subsidies that make it a lot less expensive. So this is essentially the U.S. and Europe getting into the game that others have been playing for some time. The second reason why CHIPS is important is um, on the research side. It sets aside several billion dollars for the creation of something called the National Semiconductor Technology Center, NSTC. Although the structure and format of that institution has not been settled on yet. However, it's structured, it's going to provide a huge amount of money for cutting edge research into components, into energy efficiency. There's going to be a chunk of it that will go for what we call green chemistry to reduce our industry's environmental footprint. And some of that money will go to companies for proprietary, patentable research 
but a lot of it is going to go for what we call pre-competitive research, particularly in the environmental arena where we've got some fundamental problems that we've got to address going forward, and there just hasn't been enough money and enough brain power put towards solving those problems. The NSTC will really help close that gap as well. Could you tell us what some of those problems are? Yeah. So in the environmental arena, there are several what I call existential issues. In our processes, we use fluorine because of its stability, its non-reactivity. It is very useful in the photolithography process. We use fluorinated gases, and those gases are high global warming gases. So carbon dioxide has a global warming potential of one. Some of the fluorinated gases we use are in the thousands. And then on the aqueous side, some of the fluorinated chemicals are what they call PBTs, persistent bioaccumulative toxins. We use very small quantities of these chemicals and these gases, and we have no substitutes currently. And the only way we're going to get to our net zero commitment is if we solve the fluorine problem. We've made progress, but there are no substitutes. And the other part of it is the government's not going to ban our use of these substances because there are no substitutes. While we look for substitutes, they're probably going to require us to get to what we call zero release. So that even though we're currently releasing very small amounts, in some cases, non-detectable amounts into the environment, the government's going to say, you got to go to zero. As an industry, we don't know how to do that yet. So the NSTC will hopefully help us focus an adequate amount of resources on those kinds of problems. So these are monies that are set aside for scientific innovation. And this is within the CHIPS Act. Right. Is the same true also for the Inflation Reduction Act? Do they have money set aside for invention in this regard? Not in the semiconductor industry specifically. So the Inflation Reduction Act, which is a funny name for, I mean, it's, it's called that for political reasons because it does increase some yeah. taxes, and but essentially it's a set of incentives for renewable energy. And it should be viewed in tandem with a bill that passed the year before, which everybody refers to as the infrastructure package. So the two combined provide hundreds of billions of dollars of incentives for renewable energy development. And there will be a huge amount of benefit to our industry from those expenditures because whether it's a solar array or a wind development, there are a lot of CPUs that go into those kinds of projects. Also, there's a lot of our technology that's involved, for example, at what they call the grid substation, the distribution side of the energy grid that enables the uh, incorporation of more renewables. And that involves a lot of servers. It involves a lot of virtualization. Those two bills taken together are going to provide a big incentive. And they'll also, importantly, assuming that the renewables build out as expected, that's going to make it a lot easier for companies like Intel who want to be 100% renewably powered to meet that objective. And it's also going to make it easier for data centers, whether they're Intel data centers or cloud service provider customer centers, to be powered by renewable energy, which is very important because data center energy consumption is expected to 
dramatically increase over the next 15 to 20 years. Mm -hmm. What are some of the bottlenecks that different areas in compute are going to be looking at through this funding? And I'm asking, for example, we just talked with somebody on what that means about the fact that converting just even all of the vehicles in the United States to electric would require more of certain kinds of minerals than we even have in known existence on the planet today. So I'm interested in those kinds of bottlenecks where there is really no line of sight currently. Well, you bring up an interesting point. I I think that that claim that you just cited is an exaggeration. You know, it turns out that minerals, these are economic markets. And when demand rises for anything, price goes up and it makes it economic for people to find new reserves or to tap previously known but uneconomic reserves, whether it's rare earths or lithium, to cite an example in terms of batteries. But I think the point you're you're making overall is correct. There really are two potential roadblocks to the full build-out of renewables as envisioned in the two acts we've talked about, the two laws. The first is permitting. Anything that involves federal funding typically has to go through the what's called the National Environmental Policy Act, or NEPA, and that involves an environmental impact statement. And this, by the way, could apply to the CHIPS Act projects as well. Permitting processes can take three plus years and can involve lots of litigation, which really slows things down. So there's a lot of attention being paid in the administration and Congress in industry right now to how do we fundamentally streamline the permitting process so that the environment is protected, but so these projects can go forward. You know, the other is what you refer to, Camille, and that is the natural resources that are embedded in these projects once they're built. And renewable energy is not completely green, right? It's got embedded energy and embedded natural resources over the life of a solar installation or a wind installation, that embedded energy, that embedded materials in terms of its environmental impact is dwarfed by the benefits over the long run, but it's not a zero cost. There are some trade-offs. And so what I think people are starting to look at is where can we go, particularly in the United States or Canada or other countries that are politically stable and friendly Where can we go to find additional reserves of these elements? And in a lot of cases, they're not necessarily all that rare. So, for example, rare earths, we don't use very many rare earths directly. Some of our suppliers do. turns out rare earths generally are not that rare. It's just they tend to be found in places that are hard to get at or they're very dilute in some other ore. And so it just requires expenditure of funds. Increased price will create increased supply. But opening mines is an environmentally hazardous endeavor. And so there's going to have to be a permit process that allows for the exploitation of those necessary ingredients to the clean energy transition but does it in a way that's protective of the environment. And so that's going to be a real challenge going forward. 
couple of things struck me while you were talking there. And, and one of them is I've read in multiple places that Intel, at least in the U.S., is already 100% renewable energy. Correct. So when we talk about Intel specifically, we're not completely 100% renewable outside the country, which I think is the last bit to be to made 100% renewable. Is that correct? Yeah, I think, and I forget the exact number, but I think we're at about 80%, 75 to 80% renewable globally. I think the primary places where we're not at 100% are China and Vietnam, and that has to do with the markets for electricity in those countries. But, you know, we're going to grow. Obviously, we hope we're going to grow. And so as we grow, we're going to need to take on additional renewable energy, either directly or through markets, to continue to hit that 100% in the U.S. And our goal is 100% globally. Yeah. And then the second element, which I've heard before, and I have my own opinions on this one, but I figure you're, you're far more the expert than I is the naysayers that say, well, why a company like Intel makes billions of dollars every quarter? Why is it that Intel needs a whole bunch of money from taxpayers to go be successful, right? There's already lots of money in the system. How would you respond to that in terms of both the sustainability kind of aspects, but also things like just the standard Chips Act and building fabs in Ohio and other places in the West? Well, I I would respond on sort of two levels, the philosophical level, which I'll try not to go on about too much, is, you know, there is a debate about what economists call industrial policy, right? Should governments pick winners, whether industries or companies, and subsidize individual industries? And I'm an economist by background, and the calculus is impeccable, and the graphs are impeccable that show that if every country were to play by the rules where nobody tries to subsidize any industry, they go with the industries that they're best at and have zero tariffs, that the world would be better off. And I think as a mathematical proposition, that's correct. However, no country that's currently rich or is on the way to getting rich has ever played by those rules. So you know, the alternative to that sort of laissez-faire free market approach is what is called mercantilism or industrial policy. And in the United States, politically, there's been this back and forth over which is the right way to go. Usually industrial policy wins. And in fact, in our industry, one of the most successful examples of industrial policy is Semitech, which those of us who have been around long enough will remember Back in the 70s, it looked like the entire memory market and all the the market for companies making the machines that made memory chips was going to go to Japan. And Andy Grove led the industry to get the federal government in the Ford administration, I believe, to create something called Semitech in Austin, which was a consortium of U.S. manufacturers to push. It was almost like a NSTC predecessor, right? Or a a prequel where there was a lot of money spent by the government and industry to promote advancement of cutting edge technology. And that really helped save the, the industry. So there is an example of industrial policy working for us. At a more practical, fundamental level, I would say that the reality is companies like Intel 
our board has a fiduciary responsibility to its shareholders to make sound fiscal decisions. And given the gap and what it costs to build a fab in Asia versus build a fab in the United States, and now given the fact that there are increasing national security concerns about the growth of the industry in China specifically, uh, you know, I think it's just a practical argument that there's no way that companies like Intel are going to continue to invest in the United States if it's much less expensive to invest in other countries because A, they're competing against companies in those regions. And B, as I say, as a legal matter, the board has this fiduciary responsibility to do the right thing by the shareholders. So you hit on something I I really want to explore for just a minute, too. When you mentioned there is fundamentally a single bottom line for corporations, and yet we're hearing a lot of movements, I think, across corporate America, I'll just say, toward embracing sustainability, be it through renewables or other means. And I'm wondering, I can understand why an individual human would make those decisions, but why are companies moving in that direction? What is causing that shift? And because we don't actually have a triple bottom line, why are they doing it? Well, in some respects, we kind of sort of do have a triple bottom line. You know, it's the difference between shareholders and stakeholders. And so, my comments before about fiduciary responsibility is not to suggest that the board only takes that into account or that management only takes that into account. Increasingly, the people who are investing, the investment funds, are moving uh, for their own reasons towards what they call ESG investing, environmental, social, and governance investing, where they're looking at not just the financial bottom line, but also, for example, the climate change exposure of companies. A really big factor is the employee base. You know, if you want to attract and retain, I forget, are we in Gen X or whatever the new generation is coming out of college and graduate schools? But even, you know, old farts like me, if you want to attract and retain really top-notch people, you got to show that you're responsible, socially responsible, environmentally, because the employees care about that stuff. I'll just tell you a quick story that illustrates the change in the 25 years that I've been at Intel. We used to have a program called Write, W-R-I-T-E, to know. So an employee could write in, ask a question, and it'd get directed to somebody in the company who was deemed to be appropriate to answer the question. So years ago, when uh, so-called cap-and-trade climate bills were being considered in Congress, I did an article talking about what the bills would do and what Intel's position on the bills were and why we were involved. And, you know, we were trying to be part of the solution. We weren't fighting the bills. We just wanted to help shape them in the way we thought was best. Almost every response from Arizona was, I'm a shareholder. Why the hell are you wasting my money? on this BS. Often it was phrased much more colorfully than that. From Oregon, virtually all of the responses were, why are you bothering to tinker with this? You should just accept what's given to you. (laughs) You know, it's like we should do more. Today, just based on my own interactions, no scientific sample, with employees around Intel in the United States, I think if I were to 
write something today about what we're doing on these acts we're talking about, I would get a hundred percent green response. I think that's a huge consideration, and it's particularly a huge consideration for a tech company. We've talked about some of these acts that have just recently sort of been passed, but what is happening in Europe? And then also, what is happening that you can foresee, I guess, in the near future? What what should our listeners sort of expect to see from governments and regulatory bodies in the near future? Europe is doing quite a bit through what they call the European Green Deal, which is a multi-layered set of proposals, which they are acting very rapidly on that will promote the expansion of green energy, particularly in Europe. Now, you got an interesting situation playing out. This is going to be a painful winter for Europe, if you believe the prognosticators. The rise in the cost of natural gas coming from Russia is really going to pinch the European economy. And you can see two, I'm not an expert on European politics, but you can see two sort of schools of thought developing over this. The first is, well, Europe needs to develop more conventional fossil fuel sources in the immediate future because, you know, we can't have the price of natural gas from Russia going up by five times or whatever. The other is on the green side, and I think this is the predominant voice that says we've got to double down on renewables. So that'll be an interesting debate to see how it plays out. I've heard it said before that in order for there to be a real transformation in sustainability, renewable energy needs to be cheap and plentiful. And I'm wondering what your take is on that and how quickly we might arrive at that and whether, as a third part, there need to be any significant infrastructure changes for us to get there. Well, on the first bit, we're already there. The reason why the U.S. has made significant greenhouse gas reductions over the last particularly 10 or 15 years is because the price of renewable energy, wind and solar principally, has really dropped dramatically. It varies from region to region, but in general is cheaper now than natural gas and certainly cheaper than coal. Coal-fired power plants are being phased out because they're just not economic. No bank will invest in the construction of a new one. And utilities are looking to go renewable as fast as they can. And by the way, in a lot of states in the Midwest, which are red states, you know, they vote Republican. They have strong renewables programs because it's jobs and it's cheaper electricity. And so to some extent, we're already there. If the incentives that are in the infrastructure package and the IRA legislation play out in anything like they're envisioned, that is really going to spur, again, assuming we can get the materials that you talked about earlier, Camille, that's really going to spur an even faster decline in the cost of renewables. Now, there is one significant problem besides the materials issue that Intel is involved in trying to address, and that is the state of the electricity grid. Right now, there are a lot of places in the country where there are excess renewables that just get curtailed because the grid can't handle them at a particular time. And the grid has to be balanced between supply and demand on a second-by-second basis. 
So one of the problems is we need cheaper and better long-term battery storage. So when there's excess renewables, sun or wind, if you can store that and then draw down that stored electricity when the renewables aren't available, then you get a much more sustainable, renewable-based grid. And there's a lot of progress being made to drive down the cost and improve the ability to store. So that's number one. The other is just the antiquated nature of the infrastructure. Well, and politics. So there's two pieces to the grid, very simplistically. Transmission, you know, that's taking the energy from the plants and generally transmitting those electrons over a long distance. And then there's distribution, where you step down the voltage and deliver the electricity to your home or your business. On the transmission side, you got a ton of sun in Texas. You got a ton of sun in the Midwest. You got a ton of wind in places like North Dakota. How do you wheel those electrons from North Dakota to Chicago? Well, you got to build transmission lines, and people don't like transmission lines. It's the not in my backyard or NIMBY syndrome. So that's a political problem. But the physical problem is the distribution grid is 50, 60, 70 years old. Two winters ago, when Texas basically froze, a lot of it was because the basic grid, first of all, wasn't connected with the rest of the country, and it was based upon really ancient mechanical technology. Where Intel comes into play is through our Internet of Things group. Um, This is something that a a colleague, um, Mike Bates, is leading the effort on. They're working with Dell to basically develop virtualized substations, which are essentially server racks. And these uh, systems can provide all kinds of benefits to utilities, including the greater ability to incorporate renewables, what they call distributed renewables, into the local grid. I know Camille and I will be diving into a lot of the technology aspects for various sustainability capabilities that are coming in future podcasts. But Stephen, from a regulatory standpoint and just giving us a glimpse into what's going on, this has been really helpful. So thanks for joining us today. Well, thanks for the opportunity. I appreciate it. Stay tuned for the next episode of In Technology and follow at Tom M. Garrison and Camille at Morehart on Twitter to continue the conversation. Thanks for listening. The views and opinions expressed are those of the guests and author and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Intel Corporation. Intel Corporation.